Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Praise the Lord. Beautiful day. Fall is here. Let's get into it. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we left off. We're going to pick back up the halfway through verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're visiting with us or newer or relatively new, it's our joy and custom to primarily work through books of the Bible. And we've been doing that with 2 Peter. We find ourselves in the middle of chapter 2. And this text that we're going to cover today is a doozy. If I were waking up one morning and deciding on what passage of the Bible to preach on, this probably would not be at the top of the list. But because we have a good understanding of the Word of God, we know that all of God's Word is profitable for us. And all of it has been given to us for our instruction and our reproof and our correction and our training in righteousness so that we would grow up into Christ. And so today it's a bit like eating your vegetables. You know, they don't maybe taste that good going down, but it's good for your body. It strengthens you. It prevents you. It guards you against it. It builds up your immune system and protects you from disease. And that's the way this beautiful text is this morning. So let me read 2 Peter chapter 2, starting halfway through verse 10. You know the verses were added on later by people that helped to help us organize the Bible. They weren't inspired by the Bible writers. And so this is one of those cases where I think it picks up a new sort of paragraph midway through a verse. So verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 2 halfway through that verse. This is Peter describing in further detail false teachers. And remember that's really the spine of this letter, that he's concerned about false teachers and their impact on the church. And he's told us at the beginning of this chapter that these teachers are bringing in destructive heresies, that they're deceptive, that they deny Christ, and that Doom and judgment awaits them, but here in this paragraph, he's going to further explain characteristics of these false teachers. So let's read. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey 
spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Well, let's stop there and we'll pick up and finish the rest in the coming weeks. But this is a description of false teachers that we need to consider. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and apply it. Lord, as we, as we read this text, uh, it seems so stark and really dark. And so, Lord, we, we need your help to apply this text, to understand it first in its context, and then to apply it to our own setting. Lord, I pray that you would give us as your church spiritual eyes, that you'd give us wisdom to apply this text to our setting so that we might grow in conformity to Christ, so that we might be a healthier church, so that we might develop an instinct to know good teaching from false teaching. And Lord, I pray for my friends that may be here that are unbelievers as they come on a Sunday that we're in the middle of a passage like this. I pray that as the church is, is, is growing in our discernment, that you would even use this text to be very clear with anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus, what their state is before a holy God, and that their only hope, as we have prayed and sung already, is that they would be made new by your sovereign grace, that you would give them a heart to believe and trust in Jesus who alone can save them. And do this all, Lord, for your glory and our joy and our good and for the salvation of all those that do not yet know you, that you've called to yourself and are here this morning, either in person or listening. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the challenge of a text like this is that it is to American ears, it seems polemic. And what I mean by that, we've used that word several times through the course of this study through this letter, is that it seems defensive, it seems argumentative, it seems like it's attacking false teachers, and, and that's exactly what it is doing. But we as Americans who live, most of us, in a culture that's pluralistic, where we want sort of everybody to get along, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in everyday life, can be a very bad thing when it comes to the spiritual life and the difference between good teaching and bad teaching or healthy doctrine and false doctrine. And so this passage, we have to disabuse ourselves a bit of our natural inclination to be soft and pluralistic, and we have to let the Bible actually gird us, to strengthen us, to fortify us, and to make us clear and to give us clarity about the most important things in the world, namely the truth about who God is and what he's called us to do. And so this text this morning is admittedly a challenge for modern ears to, to apply and to put themselves under. It seems distant and ancient and something that we don't necessarily need to trouble ourselves with, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
And so here's how I want us to attack and understand this text. I want first to just explain it, and then I want to apply it. So part one, explanation, part two, application. Let's look at this text quickly as we go through explaining what this text means in its context to its first century readers. Peter's again writing here in verse 10. He's, he's taking, uh, he's going back to the first part of this chapter where he talked about these teachers, these false teachers who were plaguing the church. Certainly they would have called themselves Christians and they were plaguing the church with unhelpful, destructive even heresies or things that would draw people away from a right understanding of the right teaching of the Bible. And so here he's zeroing in on the characteristics of these teachers. And he says in verses 10 and 11, he says, They are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So what is he saying here? He's saying that these, these teachers are arrogant, they're reckless, and they're foolhardy. And when he says that they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, what's he saying there? Well... He could either be saying, when he's speaking of how they, they blaspheme the glorious ones, either they are speaking slanderously towards, and that's what blasphemous mean, blaspheme means, they're speaking slander towards the glorious ones, meaning the correct teachers of God's word, or the fallen angels that we read about in the previous text. We're not sure exactly, kind of depending on the context, that either one of those things could be true. So regardless of whether or not he's talking about they, don't, they, 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 they do not tremble as they speak negatively about these fallen creatures or good teachers, regardless, the point is, is that they are haphazard, they're arrogant, they're bold, and they're reckless in their execution of their teaching. And he contrasts them with the righteous angels, and look how he describes the righteous angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And I think there's a clue there in verse 11 that maybe means that he's talking about the fallen angels there, and he's saying that the good angels are so humble that they don't even speak sort of boldly and recklessly as they're judging the fallen angels uh, that we read about in verses 4 through 9. And so these angels who, who, who are great in their glory are humble. In fact, we even read about that in Jude where it talks about the archangel Michael is arguing over the body of Moses and he really keeps his mouth shut and he doesn't speak directly to his demonic foe. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. And so what's the application here for us on verses 10 and 11 is just, it's just utter humility. And these, in contrast with these false teachers who are bold and willful, just the utter humility of the angels who don't just talk brazenly, and therefore clearly we should be humble too as we think about combating our enemies and speaking and clarifying spiritual truth even against false teachers. So verse 12, let's keep going. But these, I really digs in here and describes what they're like. These, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, Born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. 
while they feast with you. Again, this is a dark and stark description of these false teachers. He, he, he compares them to animals of instinct who just do whatever their instinct tells them to do. Their hearts haven't been renewed and regenerate, and they're just still governed. They're enslaved by their passions is really what's going on in verse 12. And they will suffer the wage for their wrongdoing. A judgment awaits them. Peter's wanting to encourage the church that that God will finally and fully bring justice. But he further describes them in verse 13 as they're just like they revel in the daytime. They're not even so uh, conspicuous that they would seek to do their damage in, in the cover of darkness, but they just brazenly do their their deeds out in the daytime. And he calls them blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, they're willing to just kind of enjoy life and try and bring you in on on their debauchery with you, with them. This is, again, a stark and dark description of these false teachers. And he continues. It gets even darker. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. I think verse 14 is pointing to the, just the sinful carnality of these false teachers. They're really all about pleasure. And whatever ministry platform they had really was there, as Peter is describing for us here, to serve their own sinful appetites. It seems like what's implied here is that they're really propping themselves up and they're kind of propping themselves up in a sensual sort of way so that they can take advantage of unsteady souls. In this particular instance, women who would be attracted to their charismatic presentation and they had an insatiable appetite for sin. They were never satisfied. And that's the description Verse 14 of these false teachers, and they have hearts trained in greed. Not only were they out for their own pleasure, they were out for their own gain. They were really just in their ministry to advance their own financial position, and he calls them accursed children. And then he further describes this greediness of these false teachers by comparing them to a greedy prophet, false prophet really, in the Old Testament. Verses 15 and 16, listen to what he says, forsaking the right way, They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So what's he referring to here? He's referring to a story in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24, where Israel was in a conflict with some of its enemies And there was this man named Balaam who was a kind of prophet for hire that the the Moabites hired out to speak a negative cursed word on Israel. And he was sort of open to to their, you know, word for hire, whatever you want me to say. And God intercepted Balaam and actually made Balaam speak his words. And he did that by the means of his donkey who actually saw this angel of judgment on the pathway as Balaam was going to meet these people to conspire against Israel. And this, he, God gave this donkey these eyes to see this angel and actually caused the donkey to speak to Balaam 
words of rebuke, saying, what are you doing? It's a tremendously extravagant story of the Lord intervening in the Old Testament, stopping this prophet for hire from his insatiableness and his greed to sell out the people of Israel. And God uses and speaks through this prophet despite his greed. And he's comparing these false teachers in the first century here to this prophet for hire who will say whatever the people want him to say so that he can gain financially. And then how does he describe them? Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. From them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So they're like springs without water. They're like an empty canteen. You're tired and you're thirsty and the, the way has been dry and you need a drink, you need a word, you need, you, need, you need some water from the Lord. And you go to these springs that seem to give water, but they're a mirage in the desert. They're waterless springs and they're mist driven by a storm. They, they build themselves on teaching that will not hold up when life gets hard. And Peter reminds his readers that gloom awaits, judgment awaits these people. The second half of verse 17, I think, is actually strangely encouraging because we may ask, like, well, Lord, why would you even allow false prophets in the Old Testament? Why would you allow false teachers in the early church to plague the church? Why would you allow false teaching now? And I think as we stare at this verse, we can zoom out a little bit and know, we can remind ourselves that God has purposes for all things. In fact, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Listen to this. This is a, this is a paradigm-shifting verse. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And so God raised up false prophets in the Old Testament under His sovereign power, never culpable for their sin, but having a purpose to use them. God allowed, even I would say, raised up, ordained, in a, in a sovereign, mysterious way, false teachers in the New Testament. And even today, God is not wringing His hands in heaven over the false teaching that's plaguing the church. He has purposes for it. And part of His purposes are to refine. In fact, there's this really poignant passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we won't take the time to read. But Paul, when he's, when he's really rebuking the, the church in Corinth, he says that, he says that there must be factions among you. In other words, there must be uh, disputes among you so that the point he's making is so that the true, the, those who are right, those who are true would be more recognized. In a sense, God, I think, is bringing glory to his name by allowing pain, false teaching, all sorts of things to clarify, to make the truth of his gospel and those who hold to it stand out against the dark backdrop of this false teaching. Which is a very radically God-centered way of looking at things, but it's for our good. It's for our good. It, of course, it doesn't mean that we should take false teaching uh, any less seriously. But it does mean that somehow in God's kind and wise providence, He has purposes for it. And He's even reserved the gloom of utter darkness for them. And then in verses 18 and 19, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice 
by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. And so I think what's going on in verse 18 is he's saying that they entice by, these, by this kind of man-centered, essential passions of the flesh, just things that speak to our old nature. They entice, and he uses the phrase here, those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. I think that's a reference to new and young and immature Christians. So they pray on these unsteady souls, as we read in verse 14, and they prey on them with this appeal to their old nature. In verse 19, they promise them freedom, a kind of joy in this life, a freedom here and now, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And so actually, the, the sort of cheap, false freedom that these false teachers were promising was actually a kind of enslavement because they were enslaved by their passions, their greed, their, their sin, their, 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 their insatiableness for their own passions. And they would use that to actually enslave other people. And oftentimes, I'm sure this would happen unwittingly, even as it happens today. So, this is a challenging text. It's not fun to read. But what's the underlining theme of this passage, I think, as we seek to apply and understand this? I would say that as we read verses 10 through 19 and we see how these false First Testament or first century preachers were plaguing the church, what are we to make of this? What's one thing that I want us to see that is a characteristic of these false teachers as we think about identifying false teaching in our context, in our day? And I would say that there is a pervasive and underlying man-centeredness, a kind of carnality, a kind of meanness to their teaching. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, says that we will all have to choose between two theologies. One is a true theology and the other is a false theology. The true theology he calls the theology of the cross, which is a right understanding of God the Son suffering on the cross for us and that we are to follow this theology of the cross which will lead us into suffering for His name, but ultimately true freedom for eternity or we can follow a theology of glory. And by that, he doesn't mean God's glory. He means a theology where we're trying to take the Bible and bend it to how it can make much of us to glorify ourselves. And this is the debate. This is the battle. And I think this is underlying Peter's admonition here to the church that do not fall prey to these false teachers who will make much of themselves and who will tickle your ears by making much of you so that you will follow them. Rather, listen to the theology of the cross, the theology of the true gospel. So, here's what I want us to do for the balance of this message. is I want to give you five pastoral thoughts on recognizing false and unhealthy teachers. Five pastoral thoughts on recognizing false and unhealthy teachers. And these, I think, are just meditations on this theme of man-centeredness that Peter brings out for us in these passages. Now, I want to be clear. This is my pastoral application that I think follows from this text as we think about what plagues us in the church today. 
And I want to help us develop an instinct because we can read this passage and it can seem so sort of bombastic and so first century that it may be difficult for us to apply this to our setting. That's why we have to think about it. And I want to help us develop an instinct, a nose for not just false teaching, and I want to distinguish this, not just false teaching, but also unhealthy teaching, teaching that may not necessarily be in and of itself heretical, but is unhealthy and will actually really serve the same purpose of false teaching. It will lead God's people away from a healthy understanding of the truth. So five thoughts about recognizing false or unhealthy teachers. Number one is that they often confess belief in the gospel and good doctrine, but they don't center their ministry and teaching on it. And this is where it becomes very challenging for us to discern sometimes whether or not a person is a healthy or unhealthy teacher. They're they're like these waterless springs that Peter talks about. They, they, They may say a lot of things that seem helpful, but ultimately they don't sustain. And one of the challenges is, is that many unhealthy teachers out in the world today would confess, they would say the same things that we believe about the gospel and general good doctrine, but they, they, it's like that's the entrance into sort of orthodoxy, but then they don't build their ministry on it. And one characteristic of teachers like this is that they tend to jump around, and I want to say tend because I'm not saying that this type of preaching is always unfaithful, but when it is a steady diet of this type of teaching and preaching, it more than likely tends in an unhealthy direction. And that is what is I, I call topical preaching versus expositional preaching. And what I mean between those two? What we do here, and what I think is a good and faithful way to do, is expositional preaching. We just generally go through books of the Bible, and the point of our passage, the point of the sermon, should be the point of the passage. We're seeking to understand God's revealed Word, and we think probably the healthiest and best way to do it is just to work through books of the Bible and to expose. That's where this word expositional comes from to expose ourselves to what God has revealed in context in his book, in the Bible, as opposed to what I think is an unhelpful and often unwise way as a steady diet for your teaching is to take topical preaching, to start with something and say, okay, let's talk about relationships or let's talk about thriving in the workplace, or let's talk about this. And then you kind of gather a bunch of verses that you think fit what you want to say about that particular topic. Now, I want to be clear, that can be done faithfully. But when you do that as a steady diet for your preaching and teaching, you tend to skip over hard portions of the Bible or confusing portions of the Bible. You really just end up cherry-picking verses that say what you already want to say about that topic, or at least you're more prone to do that. Certainly, topical preaching has its place at times, but most people that are unhealthy in their teaching will see the gospel and good doctrine as something that you need to confess, and then they see the more relevant things that you need to get in in life, and that, that, that's not true. The spine of their ministry is not explaining the Bible as it comes to us, as God has given it to us. It's really coming up with creative ways 
to what they think they would say address things more relevantly. And the problem is, is that they haven't really taken the time to see how relevant all of the Scripture is to all of life. Two, they, the focus, their focus is often pragmatism and using the Bible to make life function better or to be more fulfilling. And again, this is difficult at times to discern. Now, the idea, what do I mean by pragmatism? I mean kind of a, a kind of functionality, a sort of whatever works. If that works, if that helps me get through this life struggle or this particular situation, then let's just bring it in. Let's apply it. Now, I want to be clear that the idea that the Bible is full of principles that will help you live life better is not necessarily wrong, and it's not a bad thing. I think the Bible's full of that. But when that becomes the focus over and over without tethering all of that to the glory of God, the utter dependence of man, and the good news of the gospel, then subtly what happens in the life of a person's teaching or a church's teaching is that the most important thing is how the Bible helps us. And a lot of true things may be said in those types of uh, settings and, and, and teachings, but there's a, kind of, there's a kind of tone, there's a kind of tenor, there's a kind of underlying assumption is that this life is to be lived to the utter maximum, to the utter best functionality, and that is true spirituality. Now that's not the way the Bible really presents life. We are here to lose ourselves, to give ourselves to the glory of God. And sometimes God, in fact, oftentimes, God will lead his servants into a way of life that seems utterly unfunctional, utterly unpragmatic. I mean, it's not pragmatic for a sharp young couple in this church to lay down their life here in this country and to move all the way across the ocean to another continent to serve in a place where there are virtually no Christians where they would give themselves to the planting of churches and the translation of the Bible into native languages. That's, that's a, a different way of living. And oftentimes these churches that just preach and teachers that will preach just ways to help you navigate through life better although they may be trying to be helpful, even unwittingly, their azimuth, their due north is off. It's really all about how the Bible helps us rather than how we humble ourselves to glorify a holy God. The, the, the biggest, and what happens in churches like this when, when, when it's just about whatever works, whatever works, is that when the culture starts dictating to you what is acceptable, you will preach what is ever acceptable in the eyes of the culture. Churches and ministries that center their teaching on pragmatism will eventually cave on fundamental biblical truths like human sexuality, the complementary design of men and women. They will eventually cave because that type of faithful biblical preaching will not work for people in a hostile culture. And when I say work, I say in parentheses. It won't work for you to stand for core biblical truths. It won't work for filling your church if you preach faithful sermons sometimes. People will leave. And so they are prone to cave as well. 
Let me read to you just second. I think we're living in Second Timothy chapter four, in many ways. Let me read to you this text. I've read it often. This is, I'm sure, a familiar text to you. Second Timothy chapter four. I think this describes a lot of, a lot of this type of ministry. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. Paul says, "I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word." Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Or in other words, to suit just teachings that seem to be functional and just kind of help them live a better life. And will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So these churches wrongly focus too much on making life functional. Three, there is often an undertone of vanity and ego in their ministry. And I, I want to say this, um, I want to be, <laughs> I want to try and not be egotistical as I talk about egotistical ministers. Because I get this. I, 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 am, I am vulnerable to this. There's a, there's a kind of um, trap door. There's a kind of particular vulnerability to people in leadership. I think this is true in military leadership, in business leadership, in political leadership certainly, and in spiritual leadership in the church, is that there is this subtle, there's this subtle temptation as you give yourself to something, leading a company, uh, a brigade, a church, there's a subtle temptation to see your way as right and to, to, to be kind of self-centered. And false teachers, what seems to me, it's just there's often an undertone of vanity and a kind of carnality and ego in their ministry. You can see it just in church websites where the pastors, you know, he's just wearing like really hip clothes and the, 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 the website for that ministry is just pictures of him, you know, and, and it's just, it's a subtle look at me. I'm hip, I'm cool, I'm relevant, our church is cool and awesome, and so, you know, we have, we should be listened to because we are kind of cool. And let's just admit, friends, because many Christians, many of us, consume so much garbage on TV, we have developed an appetite for this type of presentation. And so we eat it up. There's spiritual forces of wickedness who I think are actually inspiring some of these unhealthy and false teachers to present themselves in this sort of sheeny, sort of almost kind of sexy way because they know, the devil knows, that that's what we are attracted to. And so there's a kind of undertone of kind of sexiness and carnality in the, in the ministry of these preachers. And friends, that is 180 degrees in the opposite direction of a Christ-like ministry. But it's so pervasive. It's so pervasive. And I think the internet and social media has just fed the egos of 
Christian leaders who want to be made much of. And let me just say this, I get this, and I am vulnerable to this as well. So pray for me and your other pastors. There's there's a temptation for the applause of man, and it is so seductive that you get a little taste of it, and it feeds this old nature in you, and you very easily can trick yourselves into thinking that, oh, this is the best way to do it, because now I've got more platform, and I can, t- I can reach more people, as if God needs my gifts and my platform. Friends, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. But even people that start out faithful are, are vulnerable to this type of pride, and it's, a, it's an undertone. It's, you know, we read about that, the, the uh, their eyes are full of adultery and insatiable. There's a kind of sexuality to it that I think we really need to be aware of and stay away from teachers like this. They're often very excellent in production value. They often have excellent presentations. They're often excellent communicators. And so that makes the battle even more intense. It makes it even more difficult to discern. Because the enemy who prowls about like a lion, seeking whom who those whom, whom he may devour, is going to dangle sparkly things in front of us to entice us. And then coupled with the fact that some of their teaching seems to be very, very helpful. So you have this really charismatic, really good-looking, really, uh, really uh, gifted uh, speaker presenting something that seems really, really helpful and doesn't seem to be, I mean, he's not denying the Lord, he's not denying the Trinity, he's not denying the gospel. Yeah, yeah, I believe all those things. But over the course of time, the undercurrent, the, the, the tenor of their ministry is how God is there to help you. And before you know it, that will, that will lead you astray, it'll lead you out to sea away from the safe harbors of good truth. And that is oftentimes very difficult to discern. That's why Peter at the beginning of this chapter says that these are deceptive heresies. I mean, the devil doesn't jump out from behind a rock and say, I'm here to lead you into bad doctrine or unhealthy teaching and completely cripple your spiritual life. You want to come along? That's not how the devil works. He uses the sensuality the man-centeredness in subtle ways to lead us. In fact, some of you right now are probably struggling with the fact that you think I'm being grumpy and small. Well, you know what? I probably am to some degree, and I confess that. I'm prone to these things. I don't necessarily see things right. I'm, I'm into application, which is more my opinion, but it's my pastoral instinct to give you these things, and you need to sort these things out on your own. And I pray that God will give you wisdom so that you will do that well. Four, there's often an air of super spirituality in their teaching. And I think there's kind of two main, I think there's two prevalent streams of false teaching that plague the American church today. One is the kind of pragmatic self-help kind of stream of, of unhealthy teaching that kind of it's kind of the seeker-sensitive movement that became really prevalent in the 80s and 90s, and although it's taken on different forms today, it's a kind of slick, helpful version of Christianity. It's lots of, lots of uh, teaching about leadership, and you know, churches like this will 
you know, take cultural things and make sermon series out of like, you know, the movies, the latest movies out, stuff like that. There's a kind of that, that seeker-sensitive sort of self-help stream. And there, there's a kind of super spirituality to that, but that's not. Then there's, a, there's the other stream that I think is prevalent of kind of unhealthy teaching is, is much of the charismatic world. And my brothers and sisters in that stream of the church, who I, I came out of that church, out of that stream of the church, I came to the Lord in that stream. I have much appreciation for many brothers and sisters in that stream. But there's often a kind of air of super spirituality in unhealthy teaching where the, the reliance is on the, the word, the subjective word that God would give the preacher, a special word, rather than just being satisfied with the clear simple, faithful, week-by-week delivering of God's word, they rely on some special word that is then delivered to their followers in a very super super spiritual way that preys on the immaturity of these unstable new believers who follow these preachers and teachers who can speak very eloquently and very seemingly spiritual, and it ends up leading people away from the plain teaching of the Scripture. And what ends up happening unwittingly is that the authority of these preachers and their subjective words overtakes the plain authority of the Word of God. And friends, that is incredibly dangerous. And it happens all the time. Now, I want to say that on the other aisle... And people in my stream, certainly we could critique a lot of people in the Reformed world as well. I'm not advocating a kind of dry, lifeless preaching. There's much we can say about how I need to preach better. And how, I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time on that. But friends, there's an air often of super spirituality. Be aware, beware of that. There's a, cl- a clear, faithful, humble, knowable, simplistic way of delivering God's word. Remember what he said in in, in 1 Peter, that he's given us everything we need in this word. We don't need the word of a modern day so-called prophet. And then finally, fifthly, much false and unhealthy teaching stems from a fundamental misunderstanding misunderstanding of the doctrine of salvation. And really this this last uh, thought here about recognizing false and unhealthy teachers really brings together a lot of all of this. I think much of it comes from a misunderstanding of really good doctrine and how God saves people. They don't understand the real need of humanity. They don't understand how devastating sin is. In fact, let me read you a quote from J.C. Ryle. This is what J.C. Ryle says. He was an Anglican theologian and preacher back in the mid-1800s in England. J.C. Ryle says, Dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. I think that's really true. This past week, in preparation for this message... I wanted to make sure that I was faithfully representing some, some high-profile, unhealthy teachers that I have in mind, that I know are influential in our culture and in our city. And so I, I actually took the time to listen to several hours 
of some high-profile teachers that I would consider unhealthy, and I gave them an honest listen and evaluation. I listened to some interviews that they gave in some ministry settings and some sermons that they preach. And what I noticed is that it seems like often in their teaching, they misunderstand the seriousness of sin and the, and the, the true need of humanity. They preach to an audience and they try and draw the audience in with a kind of helpfulness of principles that will help them leave their less than ideal life and arrive at a more ideal sort of place of life. But the problem with that is, is that they will, I think, and that, if that's their, their underlining principle, if that's their view of mankind, it's an unbiblical view, and it, it's trying to tap into an unregenerate, an, an unsaved person's desires for their life to be better, do better, make, to be more fulfilled. And so they will build out their teaching and the production of their, even their, 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 their church services to entertain and to be appealing to an unregenerate mind that is dead in sin. And in that scenario, when a teacher makes that the hook that they get people in with, then it becomes very, it's a kind of bait and switch. Look, this is how God will make your life better. Come, we're really cool. We're not bad people. We're not crazy Christians like our silly uncles that you, that you have as a stereotype. We're really relevant. So come and join us. Everything we do is awesome. Our music's awesome. Everybody's pretty on the stage. And my teaching isn't too offensive. It's just really slick and it's really, really helpful. The problem is what you win people with, a kind of appeal to their natural desires for a better life, is what you must win them to. Then you must feed them more of that. The human soul doesn't need to be appeased. It needs to be confronted with the holiness of God and the reality of their rebellion against God. Now that can be done in unhelpful ways, I understand it. But a clear compassionate, biblical presentation of the gospel and the offense of the gospel is actually more loving and more faithful. And the problem is, I think, is that what happens, what becomes very, very important in churches like this and ministries like this is that one of the biggest values is size and attendance. And so they... They, they sort of validate their success, in air quotes, by how many people come. And then a bunch of young pastors out there are like, wow, I, I want people to come to my church too, so I'm going to go listen to these national leaders who are really good at attracting people. The problem is, I want to I don't, I, I don't, I say, it's, I'm sure there are true Christians in, in some of these environments, but the problem is, is that they, they're at times, I think, unwittingly or whatever, they're attracting people people who aren't truly converted and actually falsely giving them a security and making them think they're converted just because they attend this church and hear these sermons full of good principles, but they've never really been confronted with the paradigm-shifting message of the gospel week after week. And so one of the main products of churches like this is actually false converts. 
But it becomes very difficult to argue with. If you're a friend and, you know, with other, like, man, I go to this church and everything's awesome. Everything's awesome. And every week has to be better and better. And that was, you know what? Most of the Sundays at Crosspoint are mediocre, like the rest of life. But we just give ourselves to gathering in our mediocrity. We give ourselves to singing songs to a glorious God. We give ourselves to the right preaching of God's word. And we trust that he will grow us. And that we will make it all the way home. And that he may call us to do things that are very countercultural in the eyes of this world. One of my favorite quotes is um, from William Still. I've read it many times before, The Work of the Pastor. He was, a, he was a grumpy old faithful Scottish preacher back in the mid-1900s. I love this cat. He's, he's going to be one of the first guys that I like high-five in heaven someday. I'm a Billy, you're my man. <laughs> William Still. Oh, gosh. And there's actually some old recordings of his preaching that I found, and it's just this Scottish accent. It just sounds like a Christian version of Sean Connery is preaching to me. It's just... It's just beautiful. This is what he said. I love this. It's, it's, it's scrappy, and it's true. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats, and let them do it out in goat land. <laughs> you will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. That's true, friends. That's true. And you know what? Let me, let me stop here. Let me, not just, let me not just sit in my little, my little foxhole and lob grenades at people. You know what? I've, I think sometimes I've done that in the history of my preaching. I want people to like me. I want, I want the church to grow. Those are, but as I've grown in ministry, I realized that we all need to be confronted. We need to be challenged. You need to hear the gospel again and again. And you will not, William still says, you will not turn goats into sheep. In other words, you won't turn unbelievers into Christians by pandering to their goatishness, by making everything so awesome that it attracts them. And then eventually we'll get to the gospel. That's not the way it works. It's a misunderstanding of the reality of the gospel, the sinfulness of man, and the holiness of God. Read through the Bible. It's not, hey, make everything, kind of dumb it down and make everything really appealing to them so that when we get them in, we will get them to a place where they're ready to hear the good news of Jesus. That's not the way the Bible goes. And then he says, do we really believe that the word of God by his spirit changes men? If we do to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of, God, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the word of God. Now again, there's a thousand things we could say about unhelpful ways that people with faithful doctrine preach and teach. I get that. I get that. But a humble, clear, unspectacular, plain, faithful, simple, working through Scripture, God will use and God will honor. And I pray that he does that here. And I pray that he gives us a good instinct for that. 
most of these false and unhealthy teachers have a fundamental misunderstanding of the doctrine of salvation. What is the doctrine of salvation? It's not just a set of beliefs that you need to agree with to get to heaven. It's a worldview. It's a paradigm. It's a lens through which we look to all of life. And it's this, that God is holy and glorious and that he created mankind in his image and that all of us have rebelled against him. And this sin is what the Bible calls it, is brought devastating destruction upon us. It's killed us spiritually. It's separated us from him. And it's put us in a place of judgment, deserving the right wrath of God. There are no good people in and of themselves in this world. All of us are children of wrath, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, by nature. But God in his kindness comes to us. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God, becomes fully man, while he's clearly still fully God, always has been and always will be, and lives a perfect life. He obeys God in his holiness. He obeys God's righteous law, where all of us have rebelled against God. We were created for God. He's not there for us. We're here for him, but we've rebelled against him. And so we're separated from him. So we need somebody to reconcile us. And we can't do that. We can't do that on our own. We can't do that by our good intentions. And so God comes to us. And he becomes a man. And he lays down the son of God. God himself lays down his sacrificial perfect life on the cross. And what's he doing? It's not just merely an example of love, although certainly it is. It's not just merely an example of sacrifice and service, although certainly it is. But on the cross, God the Son is bearing the punishment, the wrath of God that should have been ours. He's removing it. He's extinguishing it. He's taking it. He's casting it as far as the east is from the west. He's satisfying the holiness of God that is against us in our true nature. And he removes it. He extinguishes. He satisfies it. He drinks it dry. And then because he's God and he's sinless and he's holy and he's the perfect righteous man, he takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He gives us a new heart. He takes our dead heart. He removes it and he puts in us a new heart. It's called being born again. And with that new heart comes the gift of faith whereby you now, your desires change, your outlook changes, everything changes, and you are enabled now to turn away from your man-centered ways, to turn away from your rebellion, and put your hope and trust in Jesus. That's faith. It's not something you bring that God cooperates with. It's something that he gives that now you exercise because you have already been born again. And you trust in Jesus, who is the perfect mediator, the perfect, fully restored man. He is the one who has recaptured fallen humanity. And now we live that gospel now, now that saves us, now transforms us and calls us forward. Because the gospel is not just merely the news of the forgiveness of sins, although certainly it is that. But it's more than that. It's now that Christ is in us, his spirit, the third person of the trinity of this triune one God now lives in us. God lives in you. We're going to talk about tonight in the Colossians study, Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
And now, because I've been remade, I've not just been improved, I've not made a decision on my own to try harder, but now Christ lives in me, and now joy, and now obedience is found in following him, and I give my life. The most pragmatic thing I can do is not learn mere leadership principles, but to seek to give my life away for his glory, which is where our true joy resides. And that will take us in a thousand different directions, depending on the sovereignty of God in your life. Maybe it means that you're a humble, ordinary, regular guy just doing a job, paying the bills, and being a light in your community. Whatever it means, you now have Christ in you, and now the difficulties that you still face, even though you have been reborn, are used by God as you walk through them to show the world around you that you're going somewhere, that you are his, and he will use your muddy, imperfect life to be a kind of display of his glory so that he will use your fight of sanctification to be the means by which he brings salvation to those around you. And he's promised us in the gospel that Jesus has risen from the grave, and he is now glorified, and we will be like him, and we will be with him, and we will go to be with him forever. And that, that's the message of the Bible in every nook and cranny. And you keep hearing that week after week. And you keep reading the Bible through those type of lenses. And it's healthy. And it's often unspectacular. But the regenerate, the born again, the new heart, when it hears that faithful teaching, it leaps, it grows, and it goes after it. And it's stabilized. And I want us, I want to help you recognize that type of true teaching. Gospel-centered, God-glorifying, man-humbling teaching. Now let's pray. Lord, if there's anything I've said today that's not been right or uncharitable, let it fall to the ground. Whatever has been true and good, let it stick fast to our hearts. Help us to have discerning eyes, discerning ears, so that we recognize healthy, true, biblical gospel teaching, and that we would be able to recognize unhealthy teaching. Lord, I know at times in the 15 years of planting and pastoring this church, there have been times when my teaching has been more faithful or less faithful than others. I, I know that, and I, I, Lord, help me, help me with that. Help me not to seek the applause of men, but help me and the other pastors and preachers and elders of this church always seek your applause. And wherever that falls out for us, let us just be winsome, gracious, compassionate, but courageous communicators of your word. And Lord, let us be satisfied that you will do with that what you desire to do. So Lord, help, help me and the other brothers that lead this church hold fast to faithfulness and forgive me for times when I've not been as faithful as others. And Lord, I pray for the pulpits in our city. I pray for churches that are in our city, impacting and influencing our cities, that you would lead them away. If there's any unhealth in any of those, lead them away from that. I pray for the, 
the faithful churches in our city, that their number would increase. I pray for the young, man, young men on this staff that might someday pastor these churches, that might plant other churches. We pray for mid-trees. We prayed already. We thank, we're thankful, Lord, that a gospel-preaching church has been planted out of this church. We pray that there would be more or that young men from this church would go to pastor other churches. Lord, we pray that you would grow our city, our nation, really the world, Lord, in healthy teaching because souls depend on it. And Lord, if there be any friends in this room who do not know the gospel, I pray that they've heard the gospel today, especially at the end, that they would know that you're holy, that they're dead in their sins, and that their only hope is you, and you, God, you must give them eyes to see that. And if they're seeing that and understanding that, I believe that's evidence that you are drawing them to you, and what they must do now is turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Christ. Lord, give them the heart to do this. And Lord, be glorified now as we respond to you in worship, in prayer, in repentance, and in conversations on this Lord's day and as we go into this week. Lord, be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.